Why did you write Party Girl? I wrote Party Girl when I was four years sober and I realized the PR about recovery was so bad um, and that if I had had any idea how fun and funny um, and joyful recovery would be, I wouldn't have had to go as low as I did. And so I thought, what if I could tell a story, if I can help one person see that it's not, recovery is not the end of life, but the beginning, I will have done something good. How long did it take you to write it? I wrote Party Girl very quickly. Uh, I had no idea how to write a book. I just was very brazen and just was like, well, I've read novels, I will just write this. And so I started writing it and I actually had one friend who was a novelist and I was with her one day and she was saying to me, oh God, when I started off, I didn't have a clue. I mean, I didn't even know novels had a three act structure. And I remember going, ha, you didn't. And then I race home and I look and I have like 400 pages of one act. I had no idea there was supposed to be a structure. I didn't know anything. And so that was the process of, you know, what Stephen King calls killing your darlings. And I just, you know, got rid of excised 350 pages that day. And this was in the mid nineties that you wrote it? The, I wrote the book, I, I, I got sober in 2000 and I started and I wrote Party Girl in 2004, sold it to HarperCollins in 2005 and it came out in 2007. And where did you actually write the book? Oh, physically, where was I? I was in my apartment on Sweetser Avenue in, um, in West Hollywood. And anybody who's lived in LA, everyone's either lived on Sweetser or Sycamore or, or has dated somebody who's lived on Sweetser or Sycamore. It's just an LA thing. Tell me about the bidding war for the book. I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Oh, it was so exciting. A bidding war might be overstating things, but it was this completely Cinderella experience because I had been working on this book and literally an agent emails me out of the blue and says, I really like your magazine work. So it wasn't completely out of the blue because I was well known as a magazine writer. And he said, I, I think you're really funny. If you ever have a book, let me know. And I write him back and say, that's crazy. I just finished writing a book. He said, I'm going to be in LA tomorrow. Let's sign. And I said, fantastic. And the next day, I wake up and there's an email from a different agent. And she says, I just read a bunch of your magazine stories. I think you're really talented. If you ever have a book, tell me. So I write her back and I say, that is so crazy. I'm going to sign with an agent, literally walking out the door. And she said, send me your phone number. And she called me and she said, do me a favor. Do not sign with this person today. Give me one day, I'll cancel the rest of my day and I'll read your book. If I don't like it, you don't have a problem, go sign with him. If I like it, you've gotta give me a shot. And so I went to lunch with this guy. I said, I know I said I was signing, but I'm not signing. And she loved the book and she said, I can sell this. And the way we're gonna do this is if you just give a book to editors, they, they take forever to read it. So I'm gonna say, Anna's coming to town in two days. So if you want a shot at this, you gotta meet her and you have to have read it before you meet with her. And I said, but I'm not coming to town in two days. And she said, well, the worst that can happen is you'll lose money on a ticket and uh, a hotel, but I think I can sell this. 
So, and that was a lot of money to me at the time. So I go to New York, I go to these two meetings with her. And then on my second day, we get a call from Regan Books. And Regan was like, Judith Regan in the 90s was the biggest deal publisher. My wildest dreams, I didn't think that I could attract a Judith Regan. We get a call when I'm already there and they say, Judith Regan, not her herself, although anyway, they said, Regan wants to meet with you. So we go in, we meet with them. I go home and I and and Pilar, my agent, says, you know, we'll know by Monday. All weekend long, I'm just like, I promise I'll be happy for the rest of my life if this book can sell. She calls me Monday morning and she tells me that the two places passed. I'm devastated. And then, you know, I'm like, the dream's over. And she calls me back. She goes, Regan Books made an offer. And and I and I did say, I'm gonna be happy for the rest of my life. And I was for about two weeks, and then I realized, oh, no thing ever actually makes you happy. At any point in the editors reading the book or Judith Regan reading the book, did they say, can you tone it down a little bit or can you ramp it up a little bit? You know, they never said tone it down. You know, the one thing they said tone down, I. I talked about like God and spirituality and they were like, mm, 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 that really makes people uncomfortable. And this is of course, two years before a book called Eat, Pray, Love comes out. Nobody's freaked out about God at, at, at all by then. But that was the one thing they wanted me to tone down. In fact, the note I got when they bought the book was, and I'm not saying this in a self-aggrandizing way, they were just like, it's so perfect. It's like you don't you didn't make any mistakes because I come from a world of being a writer and an editor and you don't you turn in work that you have edited and re-edited and re-edited. And I don't know that the book world was used to that. They were used to typos. So yeah, all I had to do was like take out some of the God stuff and we were good. Is that because they thought that the, the, some of the topics in it, maybe the salacious parts wouldn't mix with the religion? I don't know. I think that there are certain words that freak people out and God is one of them. And so I think that publishers, just like many people, just want to take the safest route. They want to not alienate people, not freak people out. Maybe they didn't think it went with all the like crazy sex and drugs and rock and roll stuff. But, but I, I just said, sure, whatever you want, you guys know. How soon after the book was published did you sell the movie rights? The, there was interest in the movie rights before the book came out. And I'm not entirely sure how it happened, but sort of knowledge about the book and its topic leaked out. So there was interest, you know, between a, a publisher acquiring a book and releasing it, it's like a year or two, it just takes forever. So during that time, I live in Hollywood, I was hearing from people. So I, I signed with CAA, CAA was interested in representing the book. Um, and so I, the, the actual story about what happened is I got this agent who couldn't have cared less, couldn't have cared less. So there, everybody who made an offer told me they had to pursue and pursue and pursue him to even get a call back. Other friends told me they were like, your book landed on my desk with no cover letter and no explanation. So in spite of the lack of interest of my agent, there was a bidding war over it. Um, but it was, it was really frustrating when you're a small, like, you know, when you're at one of those big agencies and you're not a huge, huge star, that's, what happens, 
but um, but yeah, and so the story of the movie is amazing. Do you want me to go into that now? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so the very first offer um, we got uh, a mother daughter team who had a deal at Sony said to me, they came to me and they were wooing me and we had lunch at this place called Michael's in New York, which is probably long gone, but it was this fancy publishing place. And they said, if you go with us, we will get whatever screenwriter you want. And I was obsessed with Reality Bites. So I said, if you can get the woman who wrote Reality Bites to write my, the, my story, I'm in. And they come back and they said, we got her. Her name's Helen Childress. She's excited. Here's your check. And they optioned it for $20,000, which to me now is a fortune because now they don't really pay anything for options. But at the time, I didn't know anything. I was like, great. So then everybody's very excited. We're talking about Lindsay Lohan, who was a big star at the time, and they wanted to sell it to Lifetime. And I just thought, this sounds great. This sounds like it's going to be made. And other offers were coming in, but I was like committed to that one. So with that one, then one day I email the mother-daughter team. I don't hear back. I text them. I don't hear back. Um, I never hear anything. It's all very Hollywood. And one day I get an email from CA that says, congratulations, your rights have reverted back to you. And I wrote back and I said, what does this mean? Never heard back. Google it. It means, oh, your movie went into turnaround. It means like this is not good news. And so years pass and I was a freelance magazine writer still. And one time I wrote a story about this experience saying, um, you, oh, and it was all about Reality Bites and how Troy Dyer, who was the main character in Reality Bites, how he ruined my whole uh, like identification about dating and how I was always seeking Troy Dyer, the most screwed up man ever. And I put as an aside, um, I heard a rumor that the woman who wrote Reality Bites wrote the Party Girl script, but I never even found out if that was true. Sometimes reality really does bite. Helen Childress saw the story and emails me and says, oh my God, did you seriously never see the script that I wrote of Party Girl? And I wrote back and said, I didn't even think they were telling the truth. I never even heard from them again. And she sent me the script. So there it is like, early, so it's like 2011, I'm reading my favorite screenwriter's version of my book, which is based on my life from 10 years before. It was the most surreal experience ever. And I said to her, oh, let's, let's get the movie going again. But when it, once it's in turnaround, um, it's, that's almost impossible. So do you think the lesson though, among others, is that word gets out without you knowing how, and also, no one tells you anything. Yeah, I mean, Hollywood's an evil place. I'm sure everyone knows that. But, you know, it's, it's basically, you know, when, when I have a, book, a story like this, which has been around now for 15 years, and I have seen every incarnation of producer coming along, and I'm whined, and I'm dying, not really whined, but, you know, and they're just like, this is going to be it, we're going to do this, and we're going to go there, and then literally, you never hear from them again. I've now lived in LA for so long that I'm used to this sort of treatment. I'm just like, oh, okay. So you don't, you don't, you, you, you never hear again. You, you don't, we don't really live in a, Hollywood is not a place where anybody even really tells you when they've gone off and moved on to the next hot thing. You just have to figure it out. How did you get a meeting with Martin Scorsese's producer? Um, 
this is a great story. I am friends with this couple who have these get-togethers in LA with hundreds of people where basically they'll sort of interview usually famous people and everybody's watching and then they sometimes have friends or just people with interesting careers. So they were interviewing me in front of this crowd of about a hundred people at their place in, in Bel Air. And they were just interviewing me about publishing and why should people write books. And somebody came up to me afterwards and he said, um, are you a screenwriter? Because you talk like a screenwriter. And I said, no, but I have this book that would make the best movie. And he said, well, great, I'm a producer. And that was, his name is Niels Joel. And we were, uh, you know, we worked together. I mean, it was a long time. It was a couple years where he tried to sell it and he wasn't able to. Um, but yeah, he's great. How does a book or novel get on the radar of Hollywood and Hollywood producers? It is, a, okay, a book gets on the radar either because it sells like crazy, um, it doesn't sell like crazy, but gets a lot of buzz. Like Party Girl, the, it didn't sell that many copies, but a lot of people were talking about it. Or because a book scout finds it. And I think with... E.L. James in Fifty Shades of Grey, it really opened up Hollywood to this idea that a book does not have to be traditionally published for it to make a movie. And then Andy Weir wrote The Martian. And then, um, so, so people can't, producers can't just look at what is on the New York Times bestseller list, what's in airport bookstores. They actually have to like have a much wider swath of where they're looking to find the books. Why do you think Hollywood keeps buying the rights to your book but not making the movie? <laughs> Hollywood loves to buy the rights to things and not make them. Um, I think, you know, it's probably 3% of the books that are optioned are actually made. And, you know, I just think that everybody in Hollywood, there's somebody else that they're answering to, and most people are sort of coming from a place of fear and what just hit and what, you know, and so they just want to have as many options as possible, literally book options as possible, knowing that they're only going to take a tiny fraction of them. And tie them up so that others yeah. can't yeah. get to it before they do. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. When I, um, this is, this is kind of interesting. When I used to do coverage, one of my first jobs when I first moved to LA. So I would read screenplays and, you know, basically write book reports on them. And I remember there was this book um, th that came out and I read coverage on it and I just thought, this is the worst book I have ever read. And I wrote coverage saying, this is the worst book I have ever read. This is why, blah, blah, blah. I get called into the office the next day and my boss says to me, there was a bidding war over that book yesterday and it sold for $3 million. Now, why are you saying what you said? And I said, because it's true. It's terrible. I later, many years later, became friends with the studio head who had made that, who bought it for $3 million. And he goes, oh yeah, that book was terrible. I had to keep it out of someone else's hands. So that's why we did it. So, um, you know, there are all sorts of reasons that Hollywood digs into its deep pockets to buy things. How much money can an author expect to make on their first book? Let's say they have a publisher involved. Well, publishing has changed so much since when I got into it in 2005. Um, back then, 
I will tell you, I'm very, I'm always very tacky and open about money. I got paid $50,000 for my first book from HarperCollins. And I was devastated because I knew all these people who were making, you know, getting hundreds of thousands of dollars. This was actually almost at the same time that Hollywood was paying a lot of money for spec scripts too. Now I hear about advances that are five to $10,000. Publishing is an even more broken business than Hollywood. The way publishing works is that they know they're going to really make the bulk of their money off of probably one or two books all year, and they're gonna put all their marketing and all their promotion and all their efforts between, you know, into those few books. And they consider everything else just a loss leader. They're just sort of throwing it out. You know, 99% of books do not earn out their advance. So, and the way that works is so I was paid $50,000. So then HarperCollins has a situation where they've got, they're gonna spend $50,000 on, you know, the editing and the cover and all of the things. And then once it comes, starts to come in, then, you know, you split your percentage with your publisher. I've never earned out. Most authors have never earned out. So obviously, if you get a lower advance, you're going to earn out more quickly. But basically, the way the way publishing works is there are these books that are, you know, the Fifty Shades of Grey, the Eat, Pray, Love, the Glennon Doyle books, whatever those are, and they most of the population doesn't read. So for a book to hit, basically it has to hit a segment of the population that doesn't read, where people are gonna be going to parties and, and someone will say, oh, did you read Eat, Pray, Love? Or did you read Fifty Shades of Grey? And they're gonna feel stupid that they haven't re read it. So a book just goes crazy when people who don't even read books are reading it. Um, and so, and so those are the books. There's just, there's no, there used to be something called the midlist author. The midlist author would sell, you know, 5,000 copies of a book, 8,000 copies of the book. Now it's just the millions and millions or the people that are selling, you know, books under a thousand copies. What about if you become a New York Times bestselling author? How well, does life change? That is interesting because it, you can hit the New York Times bestseller list selling 3,000 copies. It all depends on what else is being released that week. And, you know, the Bible has never hit the New York Times bestseller list because it's about the amount of sales in a particular week. And the New York Times list, as opposed to the Wall Street Journal list or the USA Today list, they admit that it is a sort of editorial decision. It's actually William Blatty who wrote The Exorcist. His second book, Legion, he sued the New York Times because he said, you know, this was only briefly on the list. I know how many copies it sold. It went to court and the New York Times said in court, this is actually an editorial decision. So that is something that uh, they, are, they, they admitted in court. So, the big misconception is that if you hit the New York Times list, you're set for life. Not at all true. I know so many New York Times bestselling authors who are completely broke, and I know people who have self-published books that have sold 200 copies that are living large. So I was never more broke than when I was a New York Times bestselling author. Was that perception uh, an eye-opener for you? I know you said that you thought once you sell these rights, once you get this book, life will be wonderful. I think that publishing inspires more delusions than Hugh Grant movies. 
People go into it, I was one of them. You go in and you have this book and everyone says to you like, don't get your hopes up, you know, this very doesn't happen for very many people. And you're like, yeah, 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 it's gonna be different for me. And I experienced it and I have now witnessed probably hundreds of people I know who have done the same thing. And I can tell when I'm talking to them and I, and I try to, you know, give them my gentle love of like, no, 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 this doesn't work. Don't compare yourself to the exception, you know, compare yourself to the rule. And, and they just kind of give me this look of like, no, it'll be different for me. So I have found, I have never been someone whose life has changed overnight as a result of anything. I know that does happen to people, but I also know people who had crazy hits out of the gate. Their first book went crazy and they spend the rest of their career living in like the glory of their past. I wouldn't want that either. I want my greatest success to be in front of me, not behind me. Right, I think it was Elizabeth Wurzel, uh, Prozac or Nixon, yeah, and I, David Foster Wallace. Yeah, they had had these hits right out of the gate. And I, know, and I know other people who are still alive who that happened to as well. Right, and there's other things that come with it too, because I think then you're kind of always like sneered at in that world because you're the one that was the was the darling out of the gate, and I think that's a, a hard thing to live up to as well. I think it is. Yeah. I think it is. I mean, yeah. Right, right. But anyway, it's different. I know. I get it. It's going to be different for me. I understand. Yes. Right. Every it's always different. What if you self-publish? What is money like then? Well. I will say when I was being traditionally published, my first book deal was $50,000. I did five more deals. My final book deal was for $2,000, $2,000. So it worked out to about, I guess like a quarter of a penny a day for like my amount of work. No money comes from book sales. Like I will say this until I'm like blue in the face. So self-publishing, Yes, you can make more money from book sales because your percentage is going to be higher, but never look at it as the book sales. I'm obsessed with like, what is the back end? So I write books now that bring people, they bring attention to my company. They add to my credibility as a publisher, as an author, as all of these things. So yeah, I'll make like a couple thousand dollars on book sales, but I can bring in hundreds of thousands of dollars in new clients. So I think the whole perception has to change. When we're talking about money, just not even, I wanted to start a podcast called like Screw Book Sales. Like it's not about the book sales. It's about, there's no better credibility builder. There's no better business card. There's no better way to say, I am an expert than to publish a book. So why would you do that? Be the world's, be one of the world's experts and have everyone want to hire you and be worried about the counting the pennies on the book sales. It just doesn't make sense. When you talked about Bill Blatty or William Blatty uh, you yeah. know, with The Exorcist and then he had a, several other books, I believe, and you said there was this, this lawsuit. Back then, was it more what people expect and it's drastically changed now? Well, publishing, just Jeff Bezos changed publishing. When self-publishing went from like your creepy uncle's book that was like the the garage was filled with this book, he was always passing out at, at you know family reunions, that was self-publishing. When Amazon changed and they created um, KDP, where anybody could actually go in and publish a book, 
it changed everything. I mean, self-publishing isn't new. Stephen King has self-published. Jane Austen self-published. It's not new, but the way it can be done now, the level at which it can be done, it's indistinguishable from a traditionally published New York Times best-selling book. So the thing, the problem with that is that people go, great. I mean, we could in the next 10 minutes publish a book on Amazon. That doesn't mean it's going to be good. Um, but so the distinction now isn't between what's traditionally published and what's self-published, but what's published at the highest level and what isn't published at the highest level. What are the different ways that an author is paid? Um, so you mean with traditional or just in general? Or self, yeah. Um, so if you're traditionally published, you're paid your advance, which is usually broken up into threes, which is, you know, here's, here's the third, then the second third is when you turn it in, and then the third third is when you release it. If you're self-published or you're paying a company to publish, you're going to put the money out. And then it's up to you how you want to make the money back. Um, what we do for our clients, we'll put a QR code at the beginning of the book. If you put it at the beginning of the book, because of Amazon's look inside feature, people who don't even buy the book could theoretically get whatever it is. So uh, people put on QR codes on the beginning of their book. They can, you can put it on the QR, on the barcode on the back. You can put it throughout. And people do all sorts of things. There are, um, there is a, a, a writer named, he's a marketer writer uh, named Pat Flynn, who put a, he has a book called Will It Fly? Great book. And it's all about like, is your business idea viable? He created a free course that the, the there's links throughout the book to the free course. From that free course, the people who signed up, he sold them a paid course. And um, the person who helped him do that, I had on my podcast, and he said, through that, he made $111,000, not from his full email list, just from the list of the people who read the book and signed up for the free course. I don't know many authors that are making $111,000 on their launch day, but that's the kind of thing that's possible. What do you mean when you say you're not going to make money from book sales, so the book should be about your secret power? I mean that People read a how-to book because they want to solve a problem. They want to know how to do something. And so a book should show somebody who wants to know how to do something, how they can do it. But it can at the same time show how much more complicated the thing is to do than they might have thought. So somebody who could afford to would then want to pay somebody to do it for them. And who better to pay than the person who wrote the book on the topic? On top of the advance, what about royalties? Well, you're talking to someone who never earned royalties um, because they you don't royalties don't kick in until after they have paid out the advance. So, so that's why authors who just get like you know no advance or very minimal advances can earn back the I don't know the exact percentages because it's never been relevant for me. But trust me, it's not in the author's favor. So the more you get up front, almost like a film distribution yeah. deal, the better you are. Are you getting an accounting every month? Yes. I mean, I, my accountings are terribly depressing. 
Um, yeah, I mean, you get an account. You, uh, I still think I get accountings on books of mine where they're like, no book sales for this month or whatever it is. But um, but yeah, like I said, I just think looking at the book sales is is a losing game. Do you own the rights to all of your books? I only own the rights to Party Girl and then uh, How to Get Successful by Effing Up Your Life and Make Your Mess Your Memoir. I sold uh, the rights to five of my books to Harper and then one to Simon & Schuster. With Party Girl, I was able to get the rights back, which was an incredible thing. Um, because I knew the movie was gonna get made and I always hated the cover. And I just basically decided, well, Harper Collins doesn't care about this book. I really care about this book. When the book came out, Judith Regan had been fired in the worst scandal to ever hit publishing. So all these high hopes they had for the book, there wasn't, you know, they talk in publishing about if your editor leaves to go to another house, you've been orphaned. And I always said, it's like the, I was orphaned and the orphanage was built to the ground. There was, there was no office anymore. So back then in 2007, bookstores mattered a lot. And the way publishers got books into bookstores is they would send sales representatives. There were no sales representatives. So the book was sort of DOA, even though there was all this buzz and all the movie rights and all of these things. In order to get the rights back, my contract um, stipulated that I got them back within 10 years, but we still had to get it official. And so it was very complicated. My lawyer sent, um, a le you know, letters to HarperCollins, but because the division was gone, there was no one to approve it. I had to get my agent involved. And then finally, at a certain point, I said, I don't care. I don't think Harper's gonna care if I re-release it. So I had my cover designer do this amazing cover. I decided I wanted to release it in September because it was Addiction Recovery Month. And I was like, you know what? They can come after me. Hey, it'll be good publicity if they actually care. And I already had plans to release the book. And the, the day before I get a letter, it's like, congratulations, you've got your rights back. And I'm like, thanks. Didn't even need it. No scandal, darn, okay. Yeah. Is 10 years a common length of time? I actually don't know. I don't know. Um, I think when a publisher really values a book, they, they're gonna fight to keep it, but it was almost like they cared so little. That's why it was hard to get them back because there was just no one who was even involved anymore. Is being an author your dream job? All I ever wanted was to be an author. The 1976 Guinness Book of World Records showed, I was six, and it showed the youngest author was four, Dorothy Strait, and I cried and said, I can't be the youngest author. Like That's how long I've wanted to do it. Um, it is my dream job, being able, being an author and, and selling my books to companies and being traditionally published was actually a total nightmare. Being able to be an author who publishes my own books and gets to kind of do it for fun is my dream job, absolutely. Do you wish you could just be an author and not have to run your own company? That's such a good question. No. I love doing all of it. I, it's not that I feel badly for people who say that they write all day, but I think, huh, that sounds kind of boring. I love that I get to write, I get to make podcasts, I get to talk to clients, I get to go do speaking. I, I, I need the variety. And I will tell you, I had years 
uh, when I lived in New York and I was just on contract writing books for HarperCollins and my whole life was sitting in my depressing studio apartment with my two cats writing books. And to me, I know that's a dream for some people, not for me. I, I, I'm, I approach writing like a job. I always think that when people talk about writer's block, I'm like, oh, does the bricklayer walk, wake up and go, I don't feel inspired. I just don't think I can lay a brick. You know, if you're a writer, you know, have the self-respect to do it every day. And so when I was writing books, my deal with myself was I will write three pages a day, but I can't write my three pages till I revise my three pages from the day before. First time authors, I don't recommend revising as you go. You should just get your first draft out, but that's how I write books. That's not fun. I wanna have different things. I don't, it's very isolating to write full time. Well, for someone who's an extrovert, and I know you said you are, you're an extrovert, yeah, that, that that does seem difficult for those who are more introverted and they, you know, it's almost like they dread going to the grocery store. Do you think that would be a dream job or even for that type of person, it would still get depressing? I, I don't know. I can't really get in someone else's head, but I will say the people who tell me, oh, I just want to, I wish I could write full time. They're never the people who do. I think everything sounds better than it actually is. But I think, I think, um, I think we also need experiences to have things to write about. If we're doing nonfiction, it's like, you can't just hole up and, and have a whole world that you can write about. That's a great point. And so when you are busy doing other things, you're gonna- You're getting bump. material. Yeah, great material. If someone came to you and said, all I wanna do is be an author, that's all I wanna do, what would you tell them? Oh, it happens to me every day. Um, I say, great, what's your business? And they say, oh, I don't have a business. I just wanna be a, an author. And then I'll say, why? And they say, well, I really wanna help people with my story. And I say, that's amazing, go volunteer. It's gonna be a lot, it's a, it's a much easier way to help people. If the average book sells 300 copies and you could go out and volunteer and help more than 300 people in a week, that's gonna be a more fruitful use of your time. Um, I do not believe the profession of author really exists today, even the most successful ones. I mean, I guess JK Rowling, Glennon Doyle. Glennon Doyle's doing podcasts, doing speeches. You know, I don't even think that's a job anymore. But for at least 99.999% of us, it's not a viable job. I, like I said, when I was working on that book, I think I made a quarter of a penny a day. I think writers, I think all creatives should have the self-respect to say, I should be compensated appropriately for what I'm doing. I will have people who say, you know, they maybe don't say this to me, but they sort of think it's crass the way I talk about, oh, you need to have a business. And it's like, what I'm actually saying is, you should be paid for your work. You shouldn't be uh, doing it for, and begging for pennies. You should find a way to be able to live a wonderful life while also being creative. What if the flip side of the, of the would-be author comes to you and says, I want to be famous. I don't care about helping anybody. I want my name on all the lists. Oh, um, you know, I think to be effective and successful, 
as an author and to have it really mean anything, you kind of got to have that combination of having a really, something that really matters to you and a desire to share it. I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to be out there sharing a message. I think we live in the most magical time. We live in a terrible time in so many ways, and yet we live in the most magical time in terms of there are no gatekeepers anymore. Anybody can treat social media as their own magazine, TV station, radio station, uh, publishing company. And, and I think so many people look at it as this albatross. Oh, I've got to keep putting content out there. What if it's just how lucky are we that we can sort of be creative, put it out there whenever we want, and that there's no one there to say, no, you're not good enough. You're not good enough, so we're gonna pick her. I, I, think, it's, I think it's amazing. So I think that a lot of people I run into sort of say, well, who am I to write a book? Why should the world care about what I have to say? And it's like, why not you? Why not? So is it almost good to have a little bit of the, of the um, bravado, sort of a, you know, just shameless self-promotion mixed with some type of, for lack of a better term, message? Absolutely. I think, I think that what people need to remember is self-promotion is not about you. It's like, if, if you have a message, um, you know, if you recovered from something, and most people who are writing memoirs or nonfiction books have struggled with something and come out on the other side, and then they say, well, I'm not that into self-promotion. And it's like, if there's one person whose life is gonna be saved from your book, you owe it to them. It's not about you, it's actually self-obsessed to not share it because you think that, you know, th th that's self-obsessed or whatever it is. The average author sells how many copies? Around 300. And this is per year? <laughs> Total. Total, okay. Yeah. I mean, there are so many books being put out now. And I think people have, their, their numbers are, they're very confused about the numbers. When I, and I'm the exact same, when I remember being in the, like, elevator at HarperCollins and talking about the first print run of Party Girl. And I remember saying, yeah, what's it going to be like 60,000? You know, to me, when you don't know, you don't know how many that means. Any book, if you sell 10,000 copies of your book, your book has done very, very, very well. Um, you know, if those 10,000 sales happened in a week, you're hitting all the bestseller lists. So I think people who even just sell 2,000 or 3,000 copies of their books should feel really, really, really good about it. You think people are reading less now or actually more because they're using Kindle and different things like that? It's, it's not, the, the, as far as I know, the statistics on reading haven't changed. It's the volume of books out there. When I published my first book in 2007, you, there's a fraction of what's available today. Why do most authors fail? Most authors fail because they have completely unrealistic ideas about what being an author means. They think they should be able to write a book and have everybody buy it and see their brilliance. And I'm somebody who had to learn this the hard way. I did it six times, failing to ask myself, who is this book for? If I had said that on my first book, 
my career would be so much different. You'd need to be able to say, who is my book for and what do I want them to do when they finish reading it? And if you can do that, you're gonna be in better shape than 99.9% .9 of authors out there. This is for nonfiction. Fiction's a little bit different. But so, so I always, with one of my books, Make Your Miss Your Memoir, I pictured one couple, so it was two people. I pictured them the whole time, every page. Would they like this? Would this be too much for them? Would this freak them out? Would they get that? And I highly recommend that. You know, this marketing idea is the riches are in the niches, or if your book is for everyone, it's for no one. The idea with a book is you make it for the smallest group of people possible because what happens is that small group, the people in that small group read the book and feel so seen and feel like they have a book that's so specifically for them that they go out and they start recommending it to people. Now, the main reason we each pick books is somebody recommended them. Unlike movies where you're scrolling or whatever it is, most books are sold because somebody recommended them. So in other words, someone recommending your book means a lot more than you recommending your book. So if you convert one niche, they become your spokespeople, they become your salespeople, they go out and sell your book for them. So yeah, so I thought about one couple thinking, you know, if they exist, there's a lot of other people like them. You know, a lot of people talk about avatars and figure out, you know, what, it, what kind of car does he drive? And well, you know, all these things I don't get. I, I just like to picture one person or a very small group of people. Was this like this, this metaphorical couple that you saw out somewhere where you thought, you know what, I bet they would be into this? No, it's actually, I'll tell you the story. So it's this couple that I knew from this mastermind group that I'm in. And, I, and we had talked about them hiring my company to do a book for them. And I thought, what's the book I could write that would convince them that I was the right company to hire? So I write this book, I get on Good Morning America for it, we bring in hundreds of thousands of dollars in new business, they don't hire us because I don't even think they read it. I run into them maybe a year later and I tell them the story. I go, I wrote a book for you. I was thinking about you guys on every page and they said, that's hilarious. And we were, it was at a gifting suite, so my book was there. And guess who I'm working with now? Them, they did hire us. Wow. But it really was, it was really just an exercise in, I mean, my books I'm writing to help build my business. I wanna be able to be creative and the way I can be creative and not have to worry about money is if I have a business that it's bringing people into. So I always am looking at it. And I think anybody who wants to be strategic and smart about it looks at it like that. What, what do I love to do? How can I write a book that will get people to hire me to do it? What does a writer need to know if they don't want their book to fail? I think writers need to get very clear about what success and failure means. If you're relying on the whims of the universe, it's like saying like, how, how do I not lose at the lotto? Like you can't control what other people are going to do. I know I have had very um, successful book launches and unsuccessful book launches, and the success didn't have to do with how many books sold. It had to do with how I went into it. If you go into a book launch and you're thinking, this has to happen, and th these number of books have to sell, and I gotta get this review, and da da like you're setting yourself up for disappointment. If you go in and you sort of, um, 
have have high expectations but keep them loose and just decide you're going to have fun with it it's going to be amazing because if you allow whatever the universe is going to bring better things than you want are going to happen but if you i had i had such miserable book launches i remember talking to a friend he said i never feel more sorry for people than the week of their book launch because everybody thinks you're just having this incredible experience but if you're traditionally published you're just hearing from your publisher usually, it's not going very well. You're feeling like you gotta do everything you can and you can't control it. So I say, you know, when I compare how the Party Girl launch went in 2007 when HarperCollins released my book and how it went in 2021 when I re-released it myself, it was a world of difference, but it was all my attitude. How is a New York Times bestselling author different from a Wall Street Journal or USA Today author? The New York Times bestseller list is the holy grail of lists. And, you know, the New York Times just has a mystique and an allure that no other publication on earth does. The Wall Street Journal and USA Today lists are strictly by the numbers, whereas the New York Times list Yes, they're looking at sales numbers, but they're also, uh, they've been open about the fact that it is an editorial decision. A lot of um, people try to game these lists, and there were companies that were allegedly for $200,000 could get you on the New York Times bestseller list. There was a scandal a few years ago um, a book called um, Handbook for Mortals came out and it was a YA book and no one had ever heard of it. No one had ever heard of the author and it it uh, hit a, on the New York Times list above The Hate You Give, which was a YA book that everybody was obsessed with. And people said, what is this book? How come I've never heard of it? Twitter got involved and they uncovered this thing that the way they had gotten onto the New York Times list is they had figured out which bookstores were New York Times reporting bookstores. So it's sort of like a Nielsen family. Some stores report to the list and you have to have sales. You know, you can't go and buy 10,000 copies on Amazon. It has to be a little bit of sales everywhere. Ever since the Handbook for Mortal scandal, the New York Times started putting a little dagger, which basically says, uh, yeah, they made the list, but we're not totally sure. It's like it's basically putting it, putting it into question, but they still will put it on the list. A lot of people don't even know what the dagger means. Uh, Wall Street Journal and USA Today um, strictly buy the numbers. If I self-publish my book, is there any way I can become a New York Times bestselling author with that book? You absolutely can become a New York Times bestselling author with a self-published book. It doesn't happen very often, but it absolutely can happen. When someone comes to you and says, my goal is to become a New York Times bestselling author, what is your answer? If somebody says my goal is to become a New York Times bestselling author, um, I often will tell them it's like walking in to buy a lotto ticket and saying, my goal is to be the jackpot winner. That's awesome. I think that's everybody's goal when they play the lotto, but it doesn't mean it's a very realistic goal. I, I'm a big fan of those things you can control. Uh, therefore, I would rather have 100 people read one of my books and have those 100 people 
incredibly affected by it, have them want to hire me or my company than have 100,000 people who aren't really gonna care. I think it is about the quality of the reader and the impact the writer is gonna have on them and not about the numbers. What are the biggest misconceptions people have about being a New York Times bestselling author? The biggest misconception people have about being a New York Times bestselling author is they think you never have to work again. You're a millionaire, a multimillionaire. You're made for the rest of your life. The reality is being a New York Times bestselling author is amazing because you get to say, I'm a New York Times bestselling author everywhere. Trust me, I dine out on it as often as I possibly can. Um, but it doesn't really mean anything beyond the fact that you can say it. I know somebody who had a number one New York Times bestselling book, not just on the list, number one on the list for week after week after week, who is completely broke. So it doesn't mean you're set for life. It just means You've, you've accomplished something that many, many people want to accomplish and you should brag about it for the rest of your life. Can you tell us how you did it? How did you become a New York Times bestselling author? Well, so my book that hit the list was not Party Girl. People always, I'll tell you, they think it is and sometimes I don't even correct them. I'm like, yeah, yeah. It's a book uh, that I wrote for an actor um, and we co-wrote it, but he actually never read the book. Um, and it was, what happened is this, I met this actor. He said, I want to write a book. I said, I know an agent who sells celebrity memoirs. And I called him up and I said, could you sell this book? And he said, absolutely. And it can be a New York Times bestseller. And so he, he couldn't make any promises, but that's why I agreed to do it. And so it, um, you know, the actor was able to get on Dr. Phil and on the talk and on these other shows and it hit the list. And um, it doesn't matter if it hits the list once. It doesn't matter if it's the ebook or the paperback or the hardcover. It doesn't matter if it's, there's something called the extended list. If it hits the list, it's officially on the list. So how I did it is basically I partnered with somebody that um, I didn't want to partner with because I knew that would be the result or I hoped that would be the result and that it would all be worth it. A memoir has a much better chance I guess, of, of getting a publishing deal and of, of hitting this mark or no? I hear all sorts of things. Um, I, I don't know um, if, I'm, you know, I think they have separate lists. So I, when I originally wrote Party Girl, I sat there in the office with Regan Books and they said to me, why didn't you write a memoir? And it was the week that James Fry was getting like brought down on Oprah. He had written this recovery book and it turns out he had made things up. And it was like, it happened to be the week that I was meeting with Harp with uh, Regan Books about Party Girl. And I thought, well, you can't really be funny in a memoir. You can't really make fun of yourself. You can, but it's a lot harder to. In retrospect, I do wish I had done a memoir because you know, there's all these lists of like, these are the best, you know, addiction memoirs and all of these things. Nobody ever says like, here's a list of the most useful and best addiction novels. That's not really a thing. When the book came out, they called it, uh, what did Harper came up with? Um, 
they called it reality fiction, which is also now called auto fiction, where it's kind of fiction, it's a Romana clay, it's based on your real life, but then there's a lot of fictional elements to it. Can you be a successful author and never write a New York Times bestseller? A thousand percent. A successful author to me is someone who publishes a book they're proud of that helps people. And to me, it doesn't have to, it doesn't mean a certain number of sales. Um, it means that it's done at the highest level. And it doesn't even have to mean a certain length. There are successful books that are a hundred pages. Um, I don't think you should go any shorter than that. But, but there are horrible books that are on the New York Times bestseller list, like unreadable books. So there is not, it, it, there's, you know, it's, it doesn't mean it's a success, even if it's on a list to me. Do you remember the first memoir you read where you said, I want to do this? Yeah, um, I read a book called Permanent Midnight by Jerry Stahl in the late 90s. And I thought, this is funny. This is dark, but this is funny. Then I didn't really think I could do it. Then I read this book called Going Down by this uh, novelist named Jennifer Bell. And it's a novel and it's so funny. And I later became friends with her and she blurbed one of my later books. But I just, I, I don't know if I thought, I, I was just like, I wish I could do this. This is so funny. And I'm a big fan of humorous writing. Um, I'm not like, I'm like, a, I like Fitzgerald and not Hemingway. Hemingway's so serious, Fitzgerald's fun. Um, fun, but dark. That's what I like. Um, but I will tell you the, the way I actually wrote a book is I was sitting in, um, my old boss's office. It was a magazine that he worked at. And I looked on the shelf and I saw a book written by a girl we all knew. And I picked it up and I said, what's this? And he said, oh, it's so-and-so's book. And I'm like, looked and it had real pages and a real cover and a real publisher. And I thought, if she can do it, I know I can. And that's when I sat down and started writing. How much money can you make as a New York Times bestselling author? Um, I will tell you, I've never been more broke than when I was a New York Times bestselling author. That book, I had gotten an advance of, I think it was $75,000, but it took years of my life between a very unpleasant years, um, between the writing, the editing, the, the putting it out. Um, and the way I look at it is there are businesses where one client could pay you $75,000, $100,000 more than that. So, um, why worry about how much you can make from an advance or book sales when you can show how well you know how to do something and have somebody hired to do that? If it's a traditionally published book, that's a lot harder to do because a traditional publisher, they're interested in bringing people to their publishing company. So, so for, they put their website in the book. If you're independently or self-published or hybrid publishing, you get to put your website, you get to put a QR code that brings people to your newsletter list. So I think the, you know, the way to really make money is to 
write a book that helps people and helps them want to hire you. What are your thoughts on someone writing a novel before they write the screenplay? I think Hollywood is obsessed with IP, intellectual property. And I think that it makes it a lot easier to, if you can have a book and also have a screenplay, that's going to put you so far ahead of the game. Do you think someone who's a novelist can actually write their own screenplay? Um, I don't think every novelist should write their own screenplay. M my experience when Party Girl first came out, one of the first people who wanted it was Melanie Griffith, the actress Melanie Griffith. And she contacted me and said, um, I wanna make this. And she was then married to Antonio Banderas. And she said, will you come meet with us? And I went to their house and I met with them and it was so magical. And I sat there with them and I remember um, somebody who worked in the house came in and said, uh, it's Mr. Katzenberg on the line. And, and, and so he left and Melanie goes, tell Jeffrey about Party Girl. And I'm like, I'm sure he doesn't care. Melanie wanted me to write the screenplay. She said, this is your story. Um, let's have you write it. And I sat down and I had no idea what to do. Many years passed and then the pandemic hit. My boyfriend happens to not just be a screenwriter, but a structural genius. And he said to me, you absolutely could write this screenplay. You just need the structure. I actually had tried to write scripts in the past and I did actually even get paid to do one, but I really didn't know what I was doing. Once he mapped out the structure for me, I just was able to write it. I thought I was just doing it for fun. Keep me busy during a pandemic. Um, I ended up having some friends read the screenplay. Um, my friend Jeff Garland from Curb Your Enthusiasm and then my friend Rebecca DeMornay, who's an actress, we did a Zoom reading. And I heard, I and mean, again, it was just kind of for fun and I heard them and this was good and everybody was laughing. And both of them said to me afterwards, this script works and that's actually the one that's getting made. So it, it took me 15 years to, to end the right structure to realize how to do it. There are definitely different skill sets, but there are definitely people who are able to write the book and the script. And what is your definition of IP? That's a great question. I, I mean, I think IP is a book, a podcast, a YouTube show, an article, anything that is the property of somebody else that somebody could option and then make into a movie or a TV show. Why is it important for a writer to own their own IP? It's important for a writer to own their own IP because writers don't have a lot of power. The one thing you've got is your idea and they can rewrite you and they can, you know, they, they can take your power away. But if you've got your idea and it's documented clearly that that's your idea, no one can ever take that away from you. Why didn't you originally want to write the screenplay for Party Girl? I didn't want to write the screenplay because I didn't think I knew how. And I always felt like I was hearing stories about that, that diva person who ruined the project because she was so like committed to being the one who wrote the script or whatever. I'm a very practical person, which is why when the original sort of bidding war over the book came out, I said, who's paying me the most? 
which is the most option because I know the chances of it actually getting made aren't that great. So who's going to pay me the most? And, um, and somebody said, well, this is, we want this to be a Lifetime movie. And someone else said, I want this to be a Warner Brothers movie. I'm like, well, Lifetime is shooting lower. That seems more realistic. Let's go with that. So I just, I just want, I wanted it to be made. And if I was going to stand in the way of it being made because I insisted on writing the script, that didn't make a lot of sense. Once I realized I could actually do a good job at it, that's when I was willing to do it. How is writing a screenplay different than writing a novel? I think writing a screenplay, if you have the structure, it can really write itself once you've got the structure down. When you're writing a novel, um, the, it obviously, there are many more words on the page, but there are many more nuances, descriptions, character development. Um, I think it is possibly, I think more people believe they can write screenplays and try than people think they can write novels and try. I think if you're going to try to write a novel, you're probably going to succeed and it's going to be pretty good. There are a lot of really terrible scripts out there. Is it because maybe um, there's so much, you know, thinking and different things that you're writing into the novel where you can't really portray that within the, you know, sort of the screenplay format. You've got a more, it's difficult. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think this is like, if we're talking about the same thing, I think with movies, um, I think people, aspiring authors are probably going to be readers who read a lot of books as opposed to aspiring screenwriters who are probably people who like movies who maybe don't have any history or experience with writing. So it's very easy to kind of be like, Oh, Star Wars, that's a great, here's my, you know, space movie idea. Whereas that wouldn't last very long if you were trying to do that as a book. You'd kind of, it would fall apart pretty quickly, I think. What if a novelist doesn't have a skill set to adapt their screenplay? If a novelist does not have a, their skill set to adapt the screenplay, stay the hell out. As out of respect for your own work, hope that the best writer is the one who adapts it. That being said, you know, I know of stories where um, a writer is such a big writer that they are given that opportunity and, you know, get somebody who really knows what they're doing to supervise. I mean, you're after the best version of your book, not you know, getting in the writer's guild or having the glory of your name as a screenwriter. How does a writer know their novel actually should be written as a movie? I will say, I'll talk from my experience. I've written um, seven books and there's only one that people always say should be a movie. And I guess the difference is that there's a twist and there's, um, there's something about it that's cinematic. I honestly do not know. I didn't write that one saying, oh my God, this is going to be a movie and these aren't going to be movies. I think, um, I think it has to, it, 
you know, I don't know science fiction genre and all these genres. What I know are sort of the movies that would be, the books that would be made into romantic comedies. And they have to have, they have to have vibrant characters. They have to have surprising twists. They have to have, you see this couple in the beginning and you want them to be together, but they're going to be realistic obstacles that are going to keep them apart. How often does a professional writer write? I believe that a professional writer writes every day. I believe that it is one of those uh, skills. It's sort of like the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hour theory uh, that you're not going to excel at something and be able to call yourself that unless you do it all day, every day and have for decade or so. It kind of kills me. I, I meet people all the time who say, everyone tells me I'm a great writer. And I say, great, do you write every day? Well, no. I mean, it's people don't really get that it's like, you know, it's like going into a gym and lifting weights one day and saying, everybody tells me I'm so good at lifting weights. Well, if you don't do it every day, how good are you going to be? What if someone's a content writer for their job, let's say, and so they think that because I'm great at writing copy or writing stuff for, you know, a brand, that then I can write my own story. It should be no problem. I do think that if you have experience as a copywriter, as a content writer, as long as you're putting words together every day, you're going to be in much better shape than someone who isn't any kind of a writer. But it is a totally different skill set. I think, you know, it's about it's about words and language and psychology. I find actually uh, copywriters are very interesting to me because the work is about I became a writer because I'm fascinated with words and psychology. Copywriters are all about what's going to get someone to press buy, what's going to get someone to have a response. So I actually think that's better training than a lot of other writing. And when you set out to be a writer, quote unquote, you gave yourself what? You said three pages a day? Mm -hmm. Did that change? Did you add on more to your plate? No, I was always pretty committed to the three pa three pages after rewriting the three pages from the day before, because that's the thing that can take hours and hours and hours. I'm one of these writers who I may over edit. It's very easy to get very caught up in like, let me just make this perfect. Let me just make this perfect. And it's sort of like perfect is the enemy of done. And, you know, perfectionism is actually just fear wearing a disguise. It's never gonna be perfect. And when I meet people who say, I've been working on my book for seven years. I'm like, oh God, you might be better off starting again. Well, what was her name? Susan, she wrote uh, Quiet, The Power oh, yeah, of Susan Introverts. Kane. She did, Susan Cain, yeah. She did seven years, but she admits that she enjoyed the process so much because she's an introvert and it was right. it was all part of who she was. So, right, yeah. right. <laughs> but most people are not Susan Cain. Right, okay. Okay. What should a writer know before writing their book? A writer needs to know why they're writing the book. Um, I wrote a lot of books without knowing my why, and it m convinced me that I didn't like writing anymore because I had such bad experiences with it. My second book, uh, what happened is I had written a story for Details Magazine about high-class hookers in L.A., 
And I had been given this assignment. The editor said, go do what I'm giving you months. Go infiltrate this whole CD underworld. I said, great. I went and did it. And I uncovered great, crazy, crazy things. And I had like, um, I mean, I had disk drives of things, of people in prison. I mean, I had lists of famous people. I had the craziest things. And then my editor was fired and another editor came in and he said to me, literally, uh, we just need this to be a story about like how rich men get off. And so I was so bitter that they had taken this amazing material I had and made it into such a boring story that um, my agent said to me, it was, it was actually when we were walking in to make the deal for Party Girl, she said, they may offer you a two book deal. Do you have another idea? And so I just busted out with, how about a novel about high-class hookers in Hollywood. And they said, yeah, that sounds good. And that's how I got my second book deal. And I thought, well, sex sells. It's a sexy topic. People are going to like it. I, the problem is I'm not interested in the subject of hookers. I don't have a judgment about it. I'm just totally bored by it. So I'm writing this book that I'm bored by thinking, oh, sex sells. I never bothered to ask myself, why do you want to do it? If I'd asked, it would have been like, well, I want to do it because I'm resentful at my editor details. Well, that's a stupid reason to do a book. So every author needs to say, what is your why? Why you? Why this book? And why now? And if you can answer those questions and you know what you want your reader to do as soon as they finish writing it, then you should write your book. And of all of your books, which was the strongest why for you? Party Girl. Party Girl was, okay. Yeah, it was, it was absolutely, yeah. Because you felt so connected to the material because it was, it was basically you, but you were sort of em embellishing or tying together yeah. stories. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Party Girl was very much my story, but it had, it had a real, it had a real intention behind it. And I wrote it before I knew about publishers and book deals and Goodreads reviewers and nasty comments and book sales and all the things that were going to um, sort of sadly poison the experience. I, it was just written from such a pure heart. Where does the process of writing a book begin for you? The process of writing a book for me today begins with saying, what am I interested in that people actually want to know about? And not kind of having this vague idea, but really going out and trying out material. Right now, I'm writing a book that's based on my podcast interviews. And I put out there on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on Instagram, I'm constantly kind of taking the material I'm writing about and seeing how people respond to it. So you're getting actual test cases. You're getting A-B testing while you're working on something. So I need to, I wrote many books without ever bothering to ask if anybody wanted to read them. So now I get really clear about, is this a book people are going to be interested in? And then I start writing from there. So you said with your second book, you weren't really that invested in the topic. Yeah. It was more because your article was sort of kiboshed and yeah. you thought, you know what, I no, no, I want to take this. Were you surprised at the feedback that you received that people actually did want to know about this, like sort of the client list or whatever, girlfriend experience? I don't, um, no. I, I, 
Nobody really cared about my second book, least of all me. I turned that book in and I hated it. And then a month later, I said, can I have it back? I wanna rewrite it from page one. And my editor said, I don't think you need to, I think it's pretty good. And I said, no, 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 I wanna rewrite it. And I rewrote it and I rewrote it and I still hated it. And honestly, when I get emails from people who tell me they love it, I have no respect for them because <laughs> I hate the book so much. So do you think that's where there was a disconnect that maybe because you didn't feel so personally invested that it translated in how it was written? Yeah, I mean, what happened, I think what happened to me with Party Girl is I wrote this book with this pure heart and there was so much excitement around it and it was gonna be this thing and it was gonna be my dream come true. And then it didn't happen. And so I forgot about the pure heart. I thought, well, okay, I gotta be more strategic. What will sell? What do people care about? And I used to make a really big mistake in my career, which is if somebody asked me um, to like to talk about something, I took that as a sign that I should. You know, I became like a sex dating and relationship expert despite having no interest in it because somebody offered me the opportunity to do it. So my third book was about reality shows because at that point I was being asked to go on TV and talk about reality shows. I didn't have a strong affinity for reality shows. I didn't really care, but it was like, I was taking what was showing up as ideas about what I should do. And I really, if I have any regrets, it's that I didn't just stop back and go, hey, do you care about reality shows? No, mm -mm. okay, next pass, another opportunity will come along. Which is your favorite part of the writing process? That's such a good question. I used to love uh, the very end, not because you were reaching the end, but because I'm not an outliner. And so I always feel felt like the end would, it was almost a spiritual experience where it would make sense. I would write myself to a place where I'm like, oh my God, if this hadn't happened here, this could never, have, like it was almost like divinely inspired, not to sound totally pompous and self-important. Um, at this point, um, I do like all of it. I will tell you the part I like the least is actually where I am with the book I'm writing right now, which is after I've rewritten it and printed it and gone through and made edits and you're just like, oh my God, I'm on page 200 crossing things out to make changes and you're so sick of the material, that's when it gets hard. I have found a trick which is um, when I'm so sick of reading my own material, it's almost like an acting exercise, pretend I'm somebody else. How would I feel if I was Karen reading this? You know, And I almost try to embody somebody else so that I can actually get fresh eyes. What are the most common questions you receive from new authors? The most common questions I get are, how do I become a New York Times bestselling author? How do I get my book in bookstores? And, um, and how do I sell to a traditional publisher? Every day, I'm probably asked all three of those things. And people are still caring about bookstores. People are still caring about bookstores because even though, you know, the bookstores are slowly going away, everybody has that experience of like going to a bookstore as a kid or whatever your, your experiences are with bookstores, that there's something so gratifying about seeing your own work in a bookstore. What are the five biggest mistakes authors make when writing a book? Uh, the five biggest mistakes, I'm sure I've made all of them. Uh, number one, not asking who your book is for. Number two, 
focusing on all the wrong things, like the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, number three, not bothering to find out if it's a book people want or if it's a book that, if it's a topic that even has a reading audience, you know? Um, number four, they think that uh, because people have told them they're a good writer, that they should write a book. And um, number five, there's nothing unique about it. Um, and people, I think oftentimes school took a lot of the creativity out of us. My favorite comment I get from people when they read my books is I felt like I was hanging out with you. I think a lot of people, they're trying to write in some writerly voice and what it's actually doing is making them very basic and very much not sound like themselves. What stops most new writers from writing their first book? I think what stops most new writers is this question of who am I to write a book? Why should anybody care about what I have to say? And I often tell people, my life's not that interesting, but I've made it into eight books and hundreds of articles. It's not about what it is, it's about how it's told, which is why everybody may have a book in them, but not everybody should write the book themselves. If you can get help from a professional writer, do. But I think it, it's like if somebody says, who am I to, to put my thoughts out there? Who are you not to? We live in a gatekeeper free society now where nobody has to tell us we're the chosen ones. Like you can choose yourself, so why not? How does a first time writer find an editor mm. for their book and how do they know that's someone that's a match for them? Uh, I, I know almost no writers who've had success out of the gate with finding editors. It is the hardest thing because unlike say being a surgeon, anybody can say, I'm an editor. So I have seen many books, many clients come to us and they say, uh, here's my book, it's edited and we read it and it's awful. And they say, but I, but I hired this editor. And I say, well, did the editor, had they worked on best-selling books? Well, I never asked. Well, what was their experience? What did, and, and they, you don't know what you don't know. So when you're looking for an editor, the first thing you should do is get, not necessarily references, you don't need to reach out to the people, but find out what books they worked on. If they said they worked on big books, see if they're actually thanked in those books. Um, if you can always give someone a sample, give them five pages, and most editors will do a sample so you can get you know, a sense of what they're going to do. And you need to understand what editing is. There's a developmental edit, which is uh, chapter three belongs in chapter 10, chapter four should not be there, this doesn't make sense. Then there's the copy edit, which is basically, oh, you spelled this word wrong on this comma and that thing. And then there's a proofread because even though the copy editor is trained in copy editing, he's still a human being, so they're gonna miss things. We actually do a, an audio edit where we have computer software that reads the book aloud because the eyes fill in words that aren't there. So you can literally, five experienced editors can look and still like have a major word missing. Um, so they, you definitely should not trust anybody who says they're an editor. And if you find a good editor, hold on to them because they are hard to find. And what if you are continually told you should write a book? Wow, you have great stories. But then you say to yourself, 
I don't know if I want to go that far with some of these stories. And then they say, well, but it'd be too interesting to, you, you don't want to leave this out. This is, this is the meat of your book. How do you, how do you reconcile that? So you're told you should write a book, your story's so interesting, but there are certain things you're squeamish about. How far do you go? Uh, um, a lot of people uh, are nervous about telling certain parts of their story, particularly if they're writing a memoir and it involves other people. And this comes up all the time. And people will say to me, oh, I'm gonna write under a pen name because I don't want, you know. Um, I think it really, really clear. A lot of us um, are constricted because our stories involve other people and those other people may not want those stories out there or whatever it is. Um, I think only do what you're comfortable with. I have absolutely left things out because in the end, you know, if the people are still alive, I don't think it's a good idea to put it out there. But, um, you know, the nice thing about the world that we live in today with the way publishing works, you can put it out there. And if you go, you know what, I actually wish, you know what, I, I feel more comfortable now. Now people are thinking of me as a writer. I want to take that back and add more. Remove it from Amazon, remove it from Ingram. You can redo it and re-upload it and all the new copies will be that way. I mean, that's one of the glories of uh, not being traditionally published. You can change your book at any time. What is a bismoire? Hmm. So my book, Make Your Mess Your Memoir, I wanted to write a book about how to write, but I didn't feel like I had a full book in me. And I thought, you know, I'm so, I can't just tell people what to do for 300 pages. That's so boring. And I'm somebody who a lot of business books that I read, I get a lot out of them, but I find them kind of boring. And then there are memoirs I read where I'm riveted by every page, but I leave without any takeaways or anything to really do. So I thought, what if I could combine them both, tell my story, that's the memoir part, and then have four chapters that are the business part. Here's how you can tell your own memoir. And so I coined the term bizwar. It hasn't really taken off yet, but maybe after this video it will. Why is nonfiction or memoir more attractive to publishers than fiction? I actually don't know that that's true. Um, I, I, I don't, honestly, I don't know what publishers, mainstream publishers want. Mainstream publishers want what they already know is going to sell. So it's not like, you know, if J.K. Rowling has a new fiction, that's very interesting. Um, they're just, it's a business like anything else. So I don't know that nonfiction is more attractive to them than fiction, but um, they just want what's successful. If no one reads your book, you've written a journal? Yeah, I stole that line from my friend Richard. It's a good one. It's my same friend who said he felt so sorry for people the week of their book release. Um, I think that without an audience, how audacious is it for you to think people are going to read your book? I was that audacious. I just thought, well, it's out there. Obviously, people are going to care. And the reality is you've got to spend time nurturing finding your audience, making them aware of you, making sure they care about what your topic is, and then you actually 
write something that you know that people wanna read. And if you are reticent to go put yourself out there, again, cool. That just means your book may be a journal. It may be a book no one reads. If you want people to read it, you better be putting yourself out there, not just once, but over and over and over again, telling them about it. Why do you say TV appearances don't sell books? TV does not sell books because like, let's say somebody on my podcast just said this to me the other day. Let's say someone has an exercise book and they go on the Today Show and they go, this is how you're supposed to be doing sit-ups and pull-ups. Somebody watching that is like, oh, cool. Why do they need the book? The person just explained how to do it. A person has to hear about your book between eight and 15 times before they buy it. So if you're on the Today Show, that's a really big deal. That's one out of eight or 15 times as opposed to a podcast where you are in someone's ear, maybe they're lying in bed, maybe they're walking, they're do like you are there with them. It's a really, really intimate medium. And people, like if you're watching the Today Show, it's just sort of this like passive thing, it's on. Podcast, you made an active, you had an active desire to listen to that. You are either so invested in that host that you really trust what the host says, or you were searching and you wanna learn how to do something. So it was such, it's the statistics on how much better uh, authors can sell books on podcasts over books are ridiculous. How important are pre-sales? In the traditional publishing world, pre-sales used to be so important because it determined what bookstores were going to order. Now that bookstores aren't that important, um, they're, they're less important. Here's why it matters. The way it works is, let's say your book is coming out in a month and you're telling people now, every single book sale that happens between now and that first week counts towards your first week sales. So if you're trying to make the New York Times list um, and you can sell 10,000 copies between your pre-order time and the launch, that's great. For most people, it doesn't matter at all. I. I'm a big fan of like the stealth launch where you actually don't tell people the date until the book is out because most of our book sales happen on Amazon for better or worse. And the Amazon algorithm really favors new books. It really gives a lot of juice to new books. And the way it starts to work is if your book, you want people to buy your book that are already interested in your topic so that the Amazon starts doing the, what they call the also bots. So it'll say customers who bought this also bought this, 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 and this. So um, that launch week book sales matter to me a lot more than pre-sales. What can an author do to boost first week sales? Um, the best thing you can do to boost first week sales is be everywhere. But first week matters so much less than first month or first year. I think a lot of people think, oh my God, it has to be this great success out of the gate because that's what traditional, it's for traditional publishing, if your book doesn't sell that first week, they're done, they're moving on. When we're not dealing with that, your book is there for the rest of your life. And the tragedy I see is people work really hard on their books and then they pay attention to it for a week and then they move on to the next. That book is there for the rest of your life. So I say, yeah, try to be everywhere all at once, first week, but then try to layer promotion. If you have 
podcast interviews, see if one can come out week two, another one week three. Um, if you have people supporting you by sending out newsletter lists, like, and as Amazon likes that a lot. What Amazon doesn't love is a whole bunch of sales one day and then nothing, you know, drip it out. That's going to be the best thing for everyone. So the drip method. Yes. I like that. Don't waste time on forwards, celebrity endorsements and book sales. Yeah, I said that. Yeah, I um, I see so many people obsess over, I'm going to get so-and-so to do my blurb. And I judged them so much until I became that person. There was like this one person and I'm like, I know I can get her to do the blurb. And no one cares. I myself have never bought a book because somebody blurbed it ever, ever, ever. So it's wonderful to have that sort of social proof of well-known people endorsing you, but it is not the most important thing. Forwards are great if you happen to know a very famous person who happens to know you well and be associated with your topic. That's a pretty rare circumstance. Otherwise, you shouldn't do it. The nice thing about a forward is that on Amazon, they're listed as the co-author. So we have a book where Magic Johnson wrote the forward. So anybody searching for a book by Magic Johnson, this book is going to come up. But I see people just sort of being like, oh, so-and-so, like do my forward, and it doesn't even make sense. And then last but not least, book sales. Uh, why don't book sales matter? Because book sales, you're making pennies on the dollar. If you are strategic about it, you are, book sales is counting pennies when you could be literally counting millions if you have um, an offer embedded into your book or you your book shows that you are the world's leading authority on this so people wanna hire you. It's just focusing on book sales is focusing on the wrong thing. And when you say offer, you mean a link or a QR code that could then hire you out for something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just, I think, think of your book as your calling card. It is your, you know, 200 pages to go convince the world that you know about this topic. And it's not, it's not like a crass business thing. It's just, you should be paid a living wage. And if you're relying on book sales, you're never going to be unless you're JK Rowling. Would it work for fiction too? Well, no, I mean, it really doesn't. That's kind of, um, it's really hard as a fiction author to have a business that supports your book. I lucked into it with Party Girl because it was, I, I was suddenly being considered an expert in addiction and recovery. Um, but, but normally a novel is not going to lend you expertise. Of the books that you've written, Anna, how many had traditional publishers and how many were self-published? Six were traditionally published and then I've done two, between two and five. I never know what to count as a book when I can put, I, you know, I put out a journal two weeks ago, like does that count? Um, but I did six traditionally published and the rest I published myself. Is it worth it to self-publish? A thousand percent. It is, um, you need experts, you need help. Everybody, Malcolm Gladwell has an editor. You need an editor. Um, you need a book designer. You need help doing the launch. Or maybe you're just really good at research and you can figure out. I have met people who have done exquisite launches without having any experience. But most people are going to need help. 
How realistic is it for most writers to land a traditional publishing deal? Um, it's really, really hard to get a traditional publishing deal now. When I first <clears throat> got in, it was very different. Um, now the statistic that I hear is two out of every 10,000 book proposals submitted to big five publishers sell. Those are agent represented. Um, if publishers are not interested, alas, in talent and unique ideas and amazing stories, and it's not because they're terrible people, they're interested in what's gonna sell, which is why the people with all the following, the people with the big newsletter lists, the celebrities, that's who gets deals now. It's really not for that diamond in the rough great idea. Should it be a badge of honor to have rejection letters? You know, the whole, oh, I'm gonna paper my wall, <laughs> you know, my bathroom with all my rejection letters and that just shows like, I'm gonna keep going. Is that really a badge of honor? I'm not a fan of gatekeepers. My life got so good when I stopped putting myself out there to say like, hey, am I good enough? Um, I take rejection really hard. If, if other people don't and they wanna keep going, I mean, that being said, the people I know who are successful are just the ones who got up over and over and over again. Success as a writer, success as any sort of creative, I, I actually don't think it's about talent. It's about tenacity. It's about being willing to, you know, being able to take getting knocked down and getting back up again. But I'd much rather live in a world without gatekeepers where I can just make it happen. What should a new author expect from their publisher? <laughs> Very little. Um, I think that um, we all go into a traditional publishing deal thinking that our publisher is really behind us. And I always liken it to, um, you know, you're a filmmaker and you're writing and directing and starring, and producing, and, and a studio gives you all this money and you go and you make your movie and they're like, yes, this is so awesome, this is going so great. And then it's the release day and no one from the studio calls you back and you're like, but I don't understand, you gave me money, we were in this together. And then it's just like, bzzz. that's what it's like when you publish a book. You think, because they've been with you the whole time, you think they're in it with you. And I, again, if you're Glennon Doyle, you're J.K. Rowling, I'm sure they are. With the rest of us, you just are sort of like jumping off the diving board alone. So you better, we all heard that going in and thought it would be different. Um, but even I've interviewed Robert Greene, like the, one of the most successful writers of all time. He's like, your publisher does nothing for you. Given a choice, would you rather self-publish or have a publishing deal? I would rather publish myself over a publishing deal any day. Because I have published, I have had books come out where I hated the cover, I hated the title, I hated sections of it, and I was basically giving away all my power for absolutely nothing in return. Um, that being said, I mean, like, I haven't had a big publisher come along and say, here's a million dollars to write whatever book you want. It hasn't happened. I haven't been put to the test. But um, I'm pretty, I feel pretty safe saying um, I will never traditionally publish again. Okay, so that being said, what are the disadvantages of self-publishing? Um, the disadvantage of self-publishing is if you don't have people around you who know what they're doing, you're basically gonna put out a lesser product. It's not gonna be written well, it's not gonna be edited well, it's not gonna have a great cover, it's not gonna have all the things. But if you 
uh, want to hire people to do professionals to do all of that stuff, it's going to look the same as a traditionally published book. The other thing is these publishers have so many different divisions. Nobody knows like Enliven is a division of HarperCollins. Like no, if you make up a name of a publishing company, nobody knows that that's a big one or yours. Okay, so suppose me, Karen, wants yeah. to write a book. Okay, I'm going to start my own LLC as a publishing company. Is that correct? Um, yeah, you actually, I'm not a lawyer, but sure, sure. I don't know that you actually need an LLC. You can just make up a name. You go to a website called myidentifiers.com, which is Bowker. They, they give out all the ISBN numbers. So you basically go, I think it's $100, you buy uh, an ISBN and you fill in the name of the publisher and that's what's going to go out. A lot of people screw that up and it'll say like Create Space or KDP or Independently Published. You can make up, you can make, name it after your cat and make that your publishing company and that's what's gonna come up. Okay, so yeah, again, check with your attorney, uh, yeah. but we don't know LLC or not, but you can go and get your, you said it's an ISBN? Yeah. Okay. International Standard Book Number. And then you can just fill in a name that you make yeah. up, make sure that someone else doesn't already have that name. Do they run a check? I don't even know. Oh, okay. I don't know. Okay. And then there you go. You're, you're now a publisher. Yeah. Of, and now you need your book. Yeah. So is that the first step? I think ISBN comes down the line. The first step is have your elevator pitch. And I actually do have, you can go to bookelevatorpitch.com and I'll give you this template. It's my book is for blank so that they can blank. And that is your step. Fill that out, print it, put it on your wall, put it everywhere. Remember, like your book is not about you. It's about them, your reader. So never forget that. Why is it important for an author to realize no one cares about their book? It's important because um, as the author, you have to make your book fit into what's going on in the world. It's not news to anyone when a book comes out. So, you know, if you're trying to get on mainstream media, which while it doesn't sell books is really awesome promotion and social proof and all of those things, instead of going, hey, news show, my book is out. Think, how does this fit into the news? When I had my book, Make Your Mess, Your Memoir, come out July of 2020, global pandemic, a book on writing is not news to anybody. But I, so it was up to me to say, how do I make this news? So I looked up statistics about depression are at an all time high. The numbers are terrible. Then I looked up, does writing help with depression? Found numerous studies that said it. I wrote a press release and I said, this is the, the, this is the news, the depression statistics are terrible, writing helps with depression. This author, Anna David, is available to speak about it. And I got that to Good Morning America and from that I got a four minute segment on Good Morning America. There was nothing in my book about writing helps heal depression, but it didn't matter. That's what I talked on the show about and the whole time it said like New York Times bestselling author of Make Your Mess Your Memoir. So it is imperative upon you as the author to figure out where your book fits into the news and not think that your book is news in itself. And then reach out to the appropriate outlet. Yeah. Pitching yourself. Yeah. I can talk a little bit about how to do that. Yeah, that'd be great. So in order to get media attention, definitely start with um, how is my book newsworthy? Uh, try to find studies. Try to find statistics. 
try to find bookers. If you put in Good Morning America booker, a bunch of people's LinkedIn's are gonna come up. Their information is readily accessible. There are websites like Muckrack, Sissy, and Hunter.io. Um, you can find them on LinkedIn. There are ways to find out people's email addresses. The other thing you can do is subscribe to Harrow, which is short for help a reporter out, and they send out three emails a day, and it's everybody from like your mom's blog to the New York Times. They are looking for sources, and they'll say, I'm looking for sources to speak about depression, about addiction, about movies, about writing, whatever it is. They send out three emails a day, look through the emails, and when something comes up that is relevant for your topic, you are an expert. If you're writing a book on a topic, you're an expert. So reach out to that journalist with the pitch on why you should be in that story. Those are the two best ways to get media attention.